Today's teaching text is Ephesians 5, 1 through 7. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you this morning open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear from you. Help us to discern your voice amongst us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. So, it seems... There are still a few of the kids amongst us, which is good, because I look forward to these Sundays where we get to worship all together. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about love. And this can be a hard word to define for all of us. But kids, those who are with us today, I want to uh, invite you to think of your definition of love. A simple way that you would define love And if you're sitting next to uh, a parent or a sibling, take a moment now and tell them your definition of love. Now, adults... I won't make you turn to anyone and say anything, but but think of your own simple definition. What does love mean? How, How do you understand love in just a sentence? What does it mean? Well, when this question was posed to a group of four to eight year olds by some uh, social scientists, these were their answers. I want to read a few of them because they're more insightful than any definition I could give. So, Here's what they received. This is from Rebecca, who is eight years old. She said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Chrissy, age six, says, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. Terry, 
said, he's four, love is what makes you smile when you're tired. So good. And then, of course, a lot of the answers are about romantic love, um, which is only one small portion of what love is, but also if you're a kid, it's the primary thing you see, ideally between your parents. So this is what a lot of them say. Carl, age five, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. Danny, who's seven, says, Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. Uh, Noel, who's seven, says, Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and then he wears it every day. Uh, Emily, age eight, says, Love is when you kiss all the time. Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. My mommy and daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. That's Emily. Or love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken. That's what Elaine says, who's five. And after reading this one, I'm not sure my wife loves me. (laughs) Or Karen, again, defining romantic love. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down, and little stars come out of you. (laughs) She's seven. Or Chris, also seven, love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty, and still says he is handsomer than Robert Redford. (laughs) Or Mark, a similar thing, love is when mommy sees daddy on the toilet, and she doesn't think it's gross. But love, uh, obviously, is not only and not primarily about romantic love. Um, And even kids know that. I love these last few. There's just a few left. Listen to these. Cindy, who's eight years old, said, During my piano recital, I was on a stage and I was scared. I looked at all the people watching me and saw my daddy waving and smiling. He was the only one doing that. I wasn't scared anymore. That's how she defined love. Or Marianne said, love is when your puppy licks your face, even after you left him alone all day. Lauren, I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. (laughs) She's four. Bobby, who's seven, says this one. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Seven years old, he has a sort of better theology of the Holy Spirit than most of us. Or Nika, Nika, Nika says, if you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend you hate. Six years old. She sounds a lot like Jesus. Or when someone loves you, this is Billy, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Billy is four. Another four-year-old child, um, his parent just told this story about him when they were talking about love. Um, Four-year-old child had a next-door neighbor who was an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife. And upon seeing his neighbor cry, seeing the older man cry, the little boy goes up to him out in his yard 
climbs and sits on his lap and just sat there. And when his mother asked what he had said to the neighbor, the little boy said, nothing. I just helped him cry. Which is beautiful, right? Love, love. Now, love, of course, uh, isn't just about warm, fuzzy feelings, but they're nice. And in today's climate, we should take as many as we can get. Uh, It can certainly include warm, fuzzy feelings, but love is so much more than those. Love, at its most basic, in the Christian sense, is giving of oneself for the sake of others. Or as six-year-old Chrissy put it, It's about sharing your french fries without demanding that others share theirs with you. I'll talk about two aspects of it today, and that's love is about sacrifice and connection. Sacrifice and connection. Jesus said that that true love, greater love, is about laying down one's life for their friends. And he says that with authority. In other words, we should believe what he says because he actually does it then. Later in the story, right? He actually lays down his life. And so Jesus is for us the image of love. And that's what Paul says in this text. Jesus' life shows us what love is. That's because Jesus is God. And later in the scriptures, it says God is love. Uh, This is how John, anyways, John is one of Jesus' followers, one of Jesus' disciples, who who lives up close and personal with Jesus for three years, who sees his life in and out. This is how John defines him. John, who saw how Jesus interacted with people, who saw how Jesus healed the sick, who saw how Jesus dined with those who were desperate, how Jesus never retaliated but instead gave his life. John says that the core essence of God is love. The heart of who God is, is love. It's found a couple of times, but this is one of the lines in the first epistle of John. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. There's something about love that that connects us with God. It says those who live in love live in God. So whenever a, a truly loving act is committed... Somehow God is present there. Wherever love is, God is there. And this, I think, is why love is so important to us. Why why we're kind of obsessed with it. Whether it's in its romantic sense or in its warm, fuzzy feeling sense. People spend their whole lives seeking after someone to love. Opportunities to give and receive love. With people with pets, with family, with friends. And I think deep down, on a level that many folks can't even give word to or communicate, they know that love is where you find God. And I think that everyone, everyone wants to find God, whether they are aware of that or not. Everyone is searching for God. Our desire for love, our desire for connection, our desire to really be known and accepted by another, these are good, even holy desires, desires that can lead us to God. 
desires when healthy do lead us into God. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 5, he begins it here, verse 1, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And I I just want to stop there, because Paul already names those followers of Christian and us today as dearly loved children. It's already true. Uh, Love isn't something you need to go seeking or searching for or somehow hoping to earn. We are already dearly and deeply loved by God, who is the source of all love. So let me just stop here and say it louder for the people in the back. You, as you are right now, with all that you're carrying, with all that you've done, with all that you've left undone, you are dearly and deeply loved by God. Full stop. If your ears stop working at this point in the sermon, that's okay. But Paul continues. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. That's who you are already. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As hard as love can be to give words to, to define, Paul says that the way of love that we're to walk in and live our lives in is shown to us by the way of Christ. Christ who gave himself up as an offering to God. And love is about sacrifice and connection. And this is shown to us in Jesus' life. He shows us the power and beauty of sacrifice to and connection with God. And I say both of these because one without the other is not love. So I want to talk about sacrifice for a second. Because sometimes if love is reduced only to sacrifice, you maybe have heard the classic definition of love, willing the good of the other. Makes it entirely about the good of the other. That gets tricky because if you're in a relationship, and to be clear, I do not just mean a romantic relationship, uh, but any kind of relationship, family, friend. If you're in a relationship and it's just about uh, self-sacrifice on your end, it's you giving yourself all the time, that's not really love. Uh, And it usually turns into abuse. It usually turns out to be unhealthy for everyone involved. Not just the person who's sacrificing all the time, but but even for the other person. Uh, It can end up with burnout and resentment on your end. And then it ends not with connection, but with disconnection. With with the opposite. Uh, There were recently some studies done about sacrifice for the sake of relationship. And it was discovered that over half the time that a sacrifice was made for a friend or a partner, that friend or partner was unaware of it. 
They, they didn't even realize that the person making the sacrifice was making a sacrifice. Um, and, and that's a problem because you might think you're making a sacrifice for the good of your relationship, right? Whether it's moving somewhere you don't actually want to move or listening to music in the car all the time that you don't actually like or always deferring to whatever that person wants to eat or working overtime because uh, you think you got to buy the most expensive presents for someone or, or whatever the thing is or like Chrissy, sharing your french fries, but just sharing them until you have no more, and the other person never shares them. You can be doing all these things, and it doesn't even register for the other person that it's a sacrifice. They might just assume, well, you just like the same music as me, or whatever, right? It stays internal to you. You know it's a sacrifice. They don't know it's a sacrifice. That's not good. Uh, When this happens... Even though the other person might get what they want in the moment, like getting to listen to whatever music they want or living where they want, on and on and on, it doesn't actually make for a stronger or more fulfilling relationship. It it doesn't actually change the relationship. Why? Because the relationship lacks intimacy and connection or communication. There was never communication about the sacrifice. It was never talked about, so it never actually bonded the relationship. Uh, It might have made the other person have an easier life, but it didn't work for the relationship. The person in the relationship who sacrificed never communicated clearly their own wants and desires. So the other person never knew that sacrificial love was even being offered to them. This is kind of hard to follow, I bet, as I'm sharing it, because there's a lot of the same words, but I hope some of it's coming in to some clarity. If a sacrifice is made without deep connection, it's not going to be reciprocal love. And love always involves two or more parties. (laughs) It can never be just the person giving love. And then sometimes still, sacrifice might happen with communication. So, so if sacrifice is happening and there's no communication, it's probably not going to build a relationship stronger. But sacrifice can also happen with communication, but the wrong kind of communication. It can be used in a sort of manipulative way. The partner or friend is constantly reminded of the sacrifice made. You know what I gave up for you? And it's used to control or guilt the other person into submission. Have you ever had someone treat you like that? Yeah. It doesn't feel like love, does it? See, sacrifice without connection on either side uh, isn't love. It's, It's abuse, either for the one making the sacrifice or for the one being sacrificed for. And this is so interesting because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is anything but abuse. There's this powerful section where he's talking in the Gospel of John in chapter 10. One particular thing he says in verse 18. He says, No one takes my life from me. I give my life of my own free will. He says, I have the authority to give my life. I have the authority to take it back again. What he's saying is, 
there's no abuse here. No one, is, no one is forcing me to go to the cross. Not even the Father. I'm offering it out of my own free will. And that makes all the difference when it comes to sacrifice. Because Jesus says, in fact, that he goes to the cross so that his joy may be complete. He's not resentful to God or to us. You guys made me go to the cross to save you. How dare you? He gives freely out of his desire for connection. Jesus' sacrifice is, of course, ultimately about connection, about bringing us into life-giving relationship with himself, with God the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's sacrifice and connection that makes Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection about love. In a similar way, so sacrifice alone is not love, but connection or seeking connection without sacrifice is also not love. If you're only seeking connection and not willing to sacrifice, you'll end up with something less than a healthy relationship. You'll usually end up uh, making the person into a commodity, into something to be used for your own gains, whether it's your own happiness, your own pleasure, um, you not wanting to feel lonely. So whatever it is, if it's a goal for connection without sacrifice, it doesn't end well either. In fact, that's where Paul goes next. In, in verse 3, immediately after he introduces this practice of love, he warns against the corruption of love, uh, pursued in this case particularly for physical connection. In verse 3, he says, But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Sexual immorality is essentially love reduced to sex only. It's sort of grasping at physical connection without the willingness to sacrifice. And I know that there are some kids still in here, and so I want you to hear this, and you may have talked to your parents about it, uh, but that's okay. Sex, in its proper place, is a good gift from God. Its proper place is between two enthusiastically consenting adults who have committed their lives to one another in marriage. Okay? Now, What's interesting is that Paul also mentions greed in this same sentence. He introduces the idea of greed here. This insatiable, selfish desire for more of something. Whatever it is. Money, power, sex. Greed is the desire for more disconnected from sacrifice. In this case, like Chrissy, instead of sharing your fries, greed is when you eat all your fries and the other person's. Greed brings us things. Like if you're greedy, you'll probably get whatever it is you're greedy for, at least some of it. Uh, But because it lacks sacrifice, it lacks love. 
sex with enthusiastically consenting adults in the context of marriage is meant to be a beautiful, sacrificial act of unity and love. The literal, physical joining together of two bodies and souls, the embodiment of connection. But like everything that's powerful and good, it can easily become distorted. It can become a substitute for real intimacy and connection. It can become a substitute for true nearness and connection. And in that way, it can become the opposite again of what it's hoping for. It can become abuse and exploitation. All of this is why uh, it's possible to become a sex addict. Why? Because addictions in general promise something that they can't actually fulfill. Addictions promise something that they can't actually fill, which is what their power is, because then you have to keep coming back again and again and again and again. Whatever an addiction is, drugs, shopping, sex, on and on and on, it, it promises something, but then it doesn't deliver on the promise. So it's got you hooked. You come back again and again and again and again and again and again and again. They promise something that they can't fulfill. Now, you know what else does that in biblical language? Things that promise what they can't actually fulfill are called idols. Scripture talks about these things called idols. And um, idols, false gods. Paul talks about this as well. So in the next verse, two over actually, in verse five, he says, for of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Often, If you seek connection without being willing to sacrifice, you'll turn people into idols. In another of Paul's letters, in the book of Colossians, he says something very similar. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Idolatry. In the Old Testament, an idol was basically a carved uh, statue, right? Or an image of a, of a god or a goddess uh, that was prayed and sacrificed to for some specific purpose. Whatever the thing was that you needed or wanted, you might have an idol for that thing. So there'd be idols for war, idols for fertility, idols for when it came time for harvest with farming, on and on and on. And these idols promise something that they might sometimes actually deliver on. Uh, the idol didn't, but it just might be the case that it happened. So like with the, the, the harvest, when it was time to harvest, you might have an idol. You prayed for it. I hope I get a good return on my crop. It might actually ha- happen. So then, of course, you're thinking, well, I'm going to pray and sacrifice more and more to this idol. But it doesn't deliver every time. And it promises something then that it can't actually fulfill on. That's this idea of idols. Now, most of us today, I don't know about all of you, but most of us don't have carved 
statues or graven images in, in, our, in our homes, right? Most of us don't that we sort of struggle to worship to. You know, maybe earlier this morning, you're praying to a carved statue and then you come to church and you're like, oh, I feel so bad about myself. That's not the case for most of us, right? But while most of us don't have carved statues that we pray to, we do struggle with idol worship just as much. Think about some of the things we want and the idol who promises it. So most of us, like me, we, we want safety. Like, I want to know that my life is safe. So I'm going to pursue money. Because if I just had enough money in, in the savings account, in the checkings account, I'd feel safe. Because if anything goes wrong, I could just buy my way out of it. We want safety, so we pursue money. Or you might want control in your life. So you might pursue power, a higher position, or some form of power. Or, more specific to the text, we, we want connection. We want to feel loved. We don't want to feel lonely. So romance, sex, become idols. Or this one is, is less talked about, but can be just as bad. We want legacy. Like, we don't want to feel like our lives end with us and are meaningless, so we pursue our children's success. Our definition, usually, of our children's success. And none of these things are inherently bad. It's not bad to want your children to, to be successful or to, to want to have some finances or some form of power over your life or connection. None, none of them are bad at all. But they all too easily become mini-gods for us. Many gods. Tim Keller talked about them as counterfeit gods, he called. Counterfeit gods. Again, promising something they can't fulfill. I like the image of counterfeit because if you think someone gives you a $100 bill, $100 bill, and you're thinking, okay, I really need some groceries for me and my family. So you take your $100 bill to the grocery store, you pick out all the things you want, your favorite ice cream, maybe some uh, goldfish, I don't know, the things that you're excited to eat and give to others. You show up at the register with your $100 bill, and the person says, this is counterfeit. Not only do you not get the groceries, but you might get the cops called on you too. Right? So you don't get the thing that was promised, and you end up worse off than had you not had that counterfeit bill. Yeah, it's similar with, with idols. Similar with idols. When it comes time to collect on the promise, whatever that thing is actually promising, you find out it doesn't deliver and it actually makes you worse off than you were before. And it's so true that it's kind of become cliche with some of these, right? Ask almost anyone who has money how safe and secure they feel. Ask anyone who has power, who's high up in their company, how uh, do they actually feel like they have control in their life over what really matters. Right? These stories we hear over and over again. No, they don't actually deliver. Ask anyone who's romantically or, or, you know, they've sort of played the field and now they're in later stages of life, how deeply and truly connected to other people they feel. Idolatry, at its root, 
is a misdirection of love. It's a good thing that's been bent away from its proper end in God. It's a misdirection of love away from God towards something else that's not God. And the problem is that anything other than God ultimately leaves us empty and alone. The way of love that Paul invites us into is about sacrifice and connection. And the thing is, that's also what worship is. That's also what worship is. Uh, Worship is an intentional turning away from the false gods that sometimes we subconsciously worship so that we can once again remind ourselves of the goodness and sufficiency of the true God. We turn away from idols and back to God. That's why we say things like uh, earlier this morning, in you is all my hope and peace. To say that is to intentionally say, my hope, my peace is not in my banking account. It's not in my position at work. It's not even in my relationships. It is in God and God alone. And when we redirect our heart like that, it actually allows us to, in a more healthy way, exist with our money, to have a better relationship with our money, to have a better relationship in our positions where we might have power, and to have better uh, loving relationships. Because things are put in their proper place. Worship, by the way, often requires some level of sacrifice. It does. Now, that might mean that you show up and you have to sing a song that you don't like in a style that you don't like, okay? It might mean that. No shade to Maggie. The worship is great today, okay? But sometimes you may have to, you know, show up and and offer a sacrifice of praise, as the psalmist says, like that. Or it might mean giving of resources you'd rather keep for yourself. Whether that's your time, your finances, your energy, your creativity, you know? Or could mean sitting next to and engaging with someone who you'd just rather not. Maybe you know politically you're on opposite sides or you're in a different uh, age bracket and it's just awkward to talk. You don't, what the heck is Riz? You don't get it and what's this and that. Most of you didn't even let Riz is a, uh, it's a generation Z. Is that the younger ones? It's something the youngsters say, okay? Anyways. Uh, the point is, it might be a sacrifice of connection with someone for the sake of worship. A worshiping community is a community of sacrifice. It is. If you are expecting it to be anything other than that, you'll be sorely disappointed. But it is also about connection. Worship, just like love, must also have an element of connection. It's about coming into the presence of the living God. It's about intimate, relational connection to the God who made and sustains everything. Psalm 16, which we began our call to worship in, says that it is in God's presence that we shall be filled with joy. Fullness of joy comes in God's presence, that connection to God. 
And so just as love is about sacrifice and connection, love of neighbor, love of God, so is worship. I encourage you not to settle for less.